Hello and welcome to this Life Changes podcast. You are now listening to one of our Sunday messages. If you'd like to know more about Life Changes, you can visit us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Now lean in and enjoy. Good to be together this morning. We're going to be landing uh, the book of Colossians this, this morning. We've, if you've been with us, we've been journeying through this four-chapter New Testament letter written by Paul the last six or seven weeks. And I want to bring it to a culmination this morning. But I want to do that by zoning in on uh, the last verse of the, of the whole book. It's written in chapter 4, verse 18. It's a, almost a throwaway line, often not preached on, not even mentioned. But it just caught my attention how Paul wraps up this profound letter with this little statement. He says, this letter is written in my own handwriting. Um, second line, he says, remember my chains. Then he says, grace be with you. And those words, remember my chains, just leapt out at me. Remember my chains. Quite a profound little statement. You see, Paul is using his, one of the last little bit of inks, ink in, his, in, 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 the, in the pen that's flowing onto the parchment just to remind the people who are reading this, just to, if the case they'd forgotten, this is written from prison. This is listen, written by a man from prison. He's just remind, a little bit of a last little dig written from prison. And uh, it's a profound thing because when I think about this letter and how I read it, uh, I read it with a cup of coffee in my hand, open the book of Colossians in the morning, put on Bethel or Hillsong or music of choice and just know if I'm really spiritual, get the highlighter out. I'm going to take some notes this morning. Yeah? It's beautiful feet up. Oh, lovely. Or maybe if I'm feeling a little bit unspiritual and I've just got a gap between series I'm watching or fast-forwarding the sport the adverts and sport on catch-up, I'll get out my, my, my phone and flick through the version app, you know, just read, because you can get it done in five minutes. It's awesome. So quick, you know, get the Bible reading done. I say that in jest because actually I think so often we read it in, in, in devoid of understanding the context. This is not written just light and fluffy, some pip-you-up encouragement. This was written by a man in prison. And I want to tell you about this man in prison, Paul. He's writing these words uh, or having them written by somebody else on his behalf because he's got festering wounds. He hasn't showered for weeks. He hasn't had water touch his body apart from the one occasion a few weeks before when he was shipwrecked on his way to prison in Rome. This is a man who, is, who has been falsely abused and vilified, writing from a cold, hard floor. And if you're just entering into this conversation this morning and you hear these words, remember my chains, You'll be forgiven to think that the preceding chapters have been filled with a bit of venom and an angry man who is, who is bemoaning uh, the, this culture of the day, how unfair his treatment has been. He's trying to start a campaign, hashtag Caesar must fall because it's not fair. And you would, you'd be forgiven to think that this letter was filled with a man who's just going, complaining and sulking and, and stamping his foot angrily and saying, come on guys, no one's come to visit me for a while. You'll be forgiven to assume that that is what the tone of the letter has been. But in reality, he says, remember my chains at the end, because I think it's easy to forget, because the tone of the letter is written from prison, but it's the tone is one of overwhelming delight and wonder and victory and joy. This man, Paul, writing from a prison cell, is filled with this joy that just seems cannot be taken, cannot be shattered, cannot be moved. And I want to tell you, when I read about this man, Paul, a man with this joy in his heart, despite being in prison, something inside of me goes, actually, that's the type of guy I would like to learn from. I don't want to live, learn from somebody who's never lived it, who doesn't know it. I want to learn from someone who's in it and still has the joy burning inside of him. And so this morning, I want to help us understand this joy. And I've entitled this brief message this morning, 
to land this whole series and titled it, How to Have Joy in Your Prison. How to Have Joy in Your Prison. Now, please take notes, it's not mere semantics, but I did not say how to have happiness in your prison. What I mean by happiness, you see, because happiness and joy are not the same, uh, the same thing. They're not on the same side of the coin. The happiness, actually, in understanding it, is a temporary emotion. Happiness is something that can come and go and it can be stolen from you in an instant. Just ask sharks and proteas supporters. <laughs> happiness is gone. Happiness is as fleeting as the petrol price every month. Happiness is as fleeting as ESCOM's promised of no more load shedding. I'm just prophesying there, you know. But I want to say this morning, all jokes aside, that when life is hard, when sleep is little, I say amen to that. If you're wanting to get hold of me, I'm up at 2, 3, 4, 5 in the morning. Give me a call anytime. But when sleep is little, when pain is much, when the phone call rings and on the other side there isn't good news, I want to tell you there is soul-satisfying joy that is, offer, that is on offer from the writer of the book of Colossians in the gospel and the person of Jesus Christ. And this morning, I want to tell you, just as Paul has been fighting for the Colossian church's joy, I'm fighting for your joy that goes beyond circumstances, that goes beyond barriers, that goes beyond your prison, that goes beyond just your mere emotions and how you feel right now. I'm digging into your joy and I want to set us free so we can understand this joy that Paul had and how you and I, no matter what we face, we can have, have joy in our prisons. So let's pray before we get stuck in. Jesus, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the privilege, Jesus, that right now this morning you are setting us free. Every single one of us, you will set us free from lesser pursuits and lesser pleasures. And that we'll become awestruck with the person and the power of Jesus Christ. I thank you, Father God, right now that we would see you as the treasure that you are. And that we would be set free from anything smaller, any vain things that seem to captivate our hearts. God, set us free so that we can have joy that knows no bounds. In your name we pray, amen. So two ways that Paul has been drumming and fighting, drumming into the people and been fighting for their joy through this letter, and we're gonna just remind ourselves of them this morning. Number one is Paul's reminding to have joy in your prison, you need to know that Christ is supreme. Christ is supreme. I went to university years ago. Uh, I know it's a shock to many people here it. But I went to university, and uh, I was in university in Durban, UKZN, and I was a newly fresh, zealous Christian with a whole bunch of friends, and we thought, how are we going to reach uh, our friends for Jesus? And we, we prayed, and we thought, God, give us a strategy, give us a way, and in this profound wisdom, we had this idea that we felt was di direct revelation from the Lord. To reach our university for Jesus, we would hire a yogi bear suit. Profound, eh? Write, write that one down. It's good. You see, what we did with this, what we thought, what, what we would do in our, in our wisdom in that moment, we said one of us would, would, would do ching chong cha, whoever would lose would get, have to submerge himself in the yogi bear suit that we'd hired and had to walk around in the stifling Durban heat for the whole of the morning, going and disrupting lecture venues, going into different conversations and, and stopping there and getting people's attention. And attention we did get, mainly because of the yogi bear suit, but also he, the yogi bear suit had a sign attached to the front saying, free food in lecture venue 12, uh, 12 at midday. Now, let me tell you, nothing gets students' attention more than free food. So we did this, we disrupted the noise, and at midday we were in lecture venue 12 waiting, and the room just started to fill up and fill up and fill up, and I tell you, there was over 200 people who flooded in 
in the pursuit of free food. Yogi Bear was there, everything was good, emotions were running high, excitement was happening. And uh, just before we were about to open up the, 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 the tables that were laden with all the food and choice morsels that would set uh, students free who had been subjected to two-minute noodles for year after year after year, they were so excited about the, the lavish food that was offered. We said, but wait, there's a catch. And, and I've apologized for this and to the Lord since this moment. But in our, in our moment, in our, in our youthful exuberance, we said, before we start, we would love to show you a video clip. And, and this video clip is a, a deeply profound video clip. It's from a, a prophetic voice to our culture, a man named Will Ferrell, in a movie called Talladega Nights. If you've not seen it, forgive me. But it's a, a sacrilegious comedy where it's not a Christian comedy. It's a story of a man and, and his friend. I know, just for some people who are like, is he being real? And we, we show this thing, and it's a, there's a scene where they discuss how they view Jesus. And they, in a mocking tone, they say, I, I view Jesus, you know, as, I like him as a baby, dear baby Jesus. And they talk about, no, I like my, my Jesus as a ninja. You know, it's just, it's so, it's, it's juvenile comedy at the best. But we showed it to just so, there's all these different dis- discussions of how people like to view Jesus in their lens. And at the end of the clip, I got up on, I took the head off the yogi bear and said, surprise, it's me. And I stood on the table and, and started to tell them, actually, listen, Maybe you, you view Jesus this way. You view Jesus this way, this way. I want to tell you Jesus is. Actually, he's not just an option on a buffet table that you can pick and choose. Actually, the Bible makes claims that this is who Jesus is. He is supreme and he's the only way. I want to tell you that that, that moment was profound because three things happened. Everyone ate the free food afterwards. It's wonderful. Secondly, many people came to faith that day and made decisions for Christ. And thirdly, we had a whole backlash of offense that came at us. People were angry. How dare you make such an ultimate claim? How dare you in this community? You know we are learned people. We are people with opinions and, and, and tolerance here. How dare you make such a statement? And I was in that mode. I, I started to wrestle. And we started, what, what's going on here when we make that statement and, uh, to people? Why is it so counterintuitive? But actually, the reason is what Paul, somebody, a preacher once said about the Apostle Paul, said when he goes to preach somewhere, it's either revival or riots that break out. People either respond to salvation or try to stone him to death. The preacher went on and said, Paul, riots and revival. With me, I preach, they serve tea. Something's gone amiss. A lady, Dorothy Sayers, said profoundly, we have very efficiently cut the claws of the Lion of Judah, certifying him meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious ladies. We've taken this Jesus, who's supreme above all, and we've made him tolerable for our palates and tolerable for our situations. And I like the baby Jesus of Christmas because it's, it promises peace and goodwill and I can understand it. I like this Jesus. I like my Jesus this way. When actually the Apostle Paul is fighting for their joy and he's making massive claims about who Jesus is. From the very beginning, we're gonna, I want to tell you, he's telling them that actually he's fighting in a culture where, they, where the Colossian church have got all these options. said, we'll love Jesus, but we also want to have room for the Roman gods and the mystical ways that they provide. We also have, have room for the Jewish believers and their practices, and let's put them into the way we work. We can all be together in one happy family, kumbaya. He's saying, no, if you go this way and you dilute the truth of who Jesus is, you're going to dilute your joy. It'll be something that's weak and insipid and will not sustain you in the day of trouble. So Paul's fighting for us. So he says, and we've gone over this ground before in the series, but I want to retread it this morning. He says, Christ is supreme above all creation. Colossians 1 verse 15 to 16 says this. He existed, speaking of Jesus, before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. 
He made things we can see and the things we cannot see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities, and the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. Now, let's not just blaze over this and go, oh, that sounds cool. No, Paul's not just establishing some theological creed or doctrine. He is fighting for their very joy by making a very controversial statement saying, Jesus existed before anything else. It's huge. It should detonate a bomb inside our hearts. It should drive us to a response because actually what he is saying in this moment, he's saying that simple statement that Jesus existed before anything else deals a death knell to every other philosophy or ism that you could ever make up or imagine. In one breath, dualism is done away with. The thought process that there's this massive cosmic battle between Satan and God. Who will win? Who will win? I've got the one angel on my one side, the angel on the other side. It's far from the truth because in one statement, he tells us that actually God preceded Satan. Satan's a created being. Dualism is thrown out the window because actually Jesus preceded it all. The, the, these other thoughts, polytheism, theism, that there's, there's multiple gods and multiple roads to Rome, multiple roads the way to, in one statement, he throws it out by saying Jesus preexisted them all. There was no other gods on offer. He stood alone. The next existentialism is Nietzsche or Tuss, as I think in my end, so I, so as I think, so I am. And, and it's even peddled in our churches where people say, just think your way to happiness. Think your way holy. Preachers make, sell books on this theme. But in one statement, it's smashed out by the water by Paul, who says, he existed before everything. You cannot think yourself happy or holy because you are a created being and there's a creator who has ultimate say on that. See, in one statement, it should explode everything. This pantheism, that, is, that everything is God, the, the religion of Oprah and, 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 her, and her ilk, who say that, you know, everything is God and, and you know, that we can worship wherever you worship and how you worship is fine. Pantheism is thrown out because he's saying, actually, no, there is a creator and, he was, and, and everything was created from him and for him. And actually, Paul is making a claim on ultimate truth. In a day and age where, our day and age, where we say, live your truth, and I'll live my truth. People love my truth. In one statement, he blows out a wall and says, no, there is an ultimate truth. And it's not your truth. It's not my truth. It's his truth. He existed before it all. He is supreme over all creation. This, this is huge, and it's a ferret into our hearts. And I want to read, uh, tell you why. Because actually, when we come to Jesus, Jesus is not content to just moving into our hearts and sharing the space with all the other idols we've lined up. Jesus is not content to say, I'll move into room 5B and allow, and just allow I'm, I'm happy to coexist with your dependence on sex and relationships and your emotional instability and your fears and your anxiety. I'm okay just to go you, where you bow at that altar. I'm okay just to share that room. No, he says, I'm supreme. I want all of you. This, this is the claim he says, and it's so huge. Isaiah 40 verse 12 to 17 will be on the screen. It says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or with the breath of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket? Or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord? Or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. Encouraged? Maybe like, whoa, I thought you were talking about joy. That doesn't bring huge joy to my, whole, my, my heart, saying, 
Nothing. He regards us as nothing. Can I tell you why this should bring joy to your heart? Why this should set you free from lesser pleasures and pursuits? It's a reminder that you and I are not at the center. Take a breath. Take a breath. You and I are not the center of our lives. We're not the center of the story. We do not have to keep sustaining this story. The incredible power of the gospel is it, it, it comes and confronts the religion of our day. And you want to know what the religion of our day is? Something called narcissism. Narcissism, self. We actually, we, is, we are so self-absorbed. We live for the opinion of others and we worship at the God and the altar of social media and the approval of man. Okay, and we, I tell you, narcissism is exhausting. The treadmill of image management. I've got to project an image that's better than who, what I really am all the time. It's exhausting. Social media. I've posted photos of my baby sleeping. And everyone's like, he's beautiful. <laughs> Lenin, he's got colic. He wakes up every hour on the hour screaming. I'm not posting those photos. No one's going to comment on that one. What the heck's going on there? Get the demon out of that child. I know, I'm praying, I'm praying. But you see, we live in this game where we project and we project because it's all about myself. But here's the great news. When we know that he is supreme, it sets us free from us having to be. We don't have to have it all together. The great news is the sun rises and sets at his command. The waves come in and they go out at the, by the word of his power. He sustains it all. And the incredible news for us in this moment is that he is not nervous. He is not stressed out. He's not anxious. He's not in recession. He's not wringing his hands at your situation going, I'm not too sure what they should do. I don't know. No, he is supreme above creation. He's supreme above your situation. This should fill our hearts with joy. So I want to tell you, are you exhausted? Are you stressed out? I am. Here's the solution. You don't need a retreat. You don't need to run from your situation. You don't need to even go for counseling. Those things are helpful. But I want to tell you, if you miss this first thing, you will just be running from pseudo-saviors and nursing your happiness barometer. When actually he says, if you want joy in your prison, where you're at right now, they will never be stolen. Bow your knee to me. There's no other way. Bow your knee to me. He's supreme. Paul goes on and says he's not just supreme over all creation. He's supreme above all powers. I've said this already in the series, but it's so profound. This is not some made-up stuff. This is in flesh and blood writing. This letter was written in AD 62. Paul writes to a bunch of people who are so self-absorbed and self-puffed up in their own uh, search for knowledge and mysticism and secret knowledge. And hey, what's the winner? But if we have Jesus and if we just add a little bit of this thing, wow, they will be superior. He writes them fighting for their joy. No, 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 no. You're not the center. Put Jesus supreme. He's supreme above all powers. AD 62, he writes it. AD 63, Nero, the seas of the day, unleashes a whole, uh, the, the greatest wave of state-sponsored terrorism against Christians that makes ISIS look like Teletubbies. I, I, I kid you not. Nero unleashes hell upon Christianity and goes after anyone who would, would, would dare state that Jesus is Lord above Caesar. He would crush, he said, I will crush them under my thumb. Caesar, would, he had them burned alive. He had other Christians sewn into the skins of wild animals alive and then have the dogs come and tear their bodies apart. Caesar, Nero, would have them crucified, would have, them, would have martyrs uh, in the, exhibited in the circus with Nero presiding as a charioteer over them, giving his approval. He hosted garden parties for his friends. We would have uh, the, the Christians tarred in uh, tar, uh, coated with tar, and set ablaze 
for, the, for purposes of lighting and entertainment. This was Nero, a sadistic man who came to crush the people of God. AD 62, Paul fighting for a joy in prison because he knew what was coming. And light and fluffy won't sustain you in the day of trouble. Joy in him will. But here's the great news. I can imagine him saying, how long, O oh Lord? How long will, you, will, you, will, will this Roman Empire crush, this Roman Empire that, that lords itself over the whole of creation and just expanding at a rapid rate? Here's the great news. Rome rose and Rome fell. Can I tell you, the Caesar's names have just become a footnote that we Wikipedia in history, and we have to search and fade for other details in our lives. But the man, Jesus from Nazareth, his name has just risen and risen and risen and risen and risen and risen, and they cannot snuff it out. They cannot contain it. And the great news is this, that people who are side with Jesus, he says this about them, my church will force the advance, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I tell you, this is what should put courage in our hearts because actually right now, you know that it's just a footnote in history. You can even go into Rome now and for 20 pounds, you can be taken on a tour of the broken down Colosseum, the place where they murdered our brothers and sisters. It's not 20 pounds for a little narrated tour. That's how small the might of Rome is in light of who Jesus is, the church moving forward. Here's the powerful thing for our joy in the story is right now our president, our economy, your boss, your spouse, your kids, your friends do not hold your joy. Get set free from that. Because the problem is the temptation is to put our kids at the center. But the problem is our kids will make us happy when they perform. And when they let us down, we'll crash to the very bottom. Why do marriages fail often? Because they expected their wife or their husband to be God, to sustain their happiness. And when they don't perform, then everything falls apart because actually my happiness was tied to your performance, tied to the government's performance, tied to my job's performance. When actually, no, no, our joy is the fact that he's supreme above all powers. Unchallenged, unrivaled, stands alone. Secondly, and finally this morning, he's not just supreme, Paul does something masterful. He says he's supreme above all creation, all powers and authorities, dominions. And he says he's also sufficient. I want to tell you, Christ is sufficient. He's enough. He's more than enough for you. Colossians 1 verse 20, at the very crux of it says this, Jesus made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. You see, what's so profound is actually when we read this Bible, here's the great news. I think often a lot of us get sucked into even reading the Bible wrong. We read it as something as if it's, we've been told it's basic instructions before leaving earth, B-I-B-L-E. That's the book for me. You know, it's like, it sounds cool. It rolls off the tongue, and it's nice, but again, that's not the very essence because do you know what the problem with that is? It puts you and I at the center of it, that we think and suck it into that this Bible was written to Speak to me alone. It's about me. I'm at the center of it. So we start reading it wrong. We start reading with ourselves at the center. So much so we've done this before, but we, we, we read ourselves. We read David and Goliath because we're reading it for, I want personal application to make me happy today until I forget about it for six days and I'll remember, I'll read again, and it'll just make me feel a little bit better about myself. The story of David and Goliath, we go, I'm David. If I really work hard, get the right, and we start metaphorizing the story. If I get the right stones and the right people, then I can take down Goliath, which is often my boss. Or No, we, like, we do the situation. The point of the story of David and Goliath is that you and I are not David. Jesus is David, who takes on Goliath, and he has the great news. Do you want to know who you and I are in that story? We're the brothers cowering in the distance, watching David fight a battle and go, go for it, David. 
And when David wins, we go, we won! Woo! That's the beauty of the gospel. Because so much we're putting pressure on ourselves to be David. You're not David. He is David, the greater David. Every story is about he is greater. And we, the, the great narrative of the Bible from page one to the end is that Jesus is sufficient. It's sufficient. And the amazing thing, somebody once said that if you cut the Bible, it bleeds the blood of Jesus. It bleeds the blood of Jesus on every page. And I want, I want to show us this, how it works today very quickly. In the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 22, there's a story that's sometimes hard to make sense of. God is, the backstory is God meets a man named Abram. Promises, I'm going to give you a son and make your father of many nations. Many years pass. He waits, 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 waits. Eventually, the son is given miraculously. Abraham is amazing. My boy, Isaac, Isaac, my boy, my happiness is complete. But God says, no, no, the story is actually not just, you're not the center. I'm doing something bigger. And it's not about your circumstantial happiness. I'm actually setting up joy for all nations. So he says, actually, Abraham, I need you to take that boy, Isaac. And in chapter 22, I want you to walk up the hill, the mountain called Moriah. I want you to sacrifice your boy to me. And that story, you read it as a parent, you go, horror, shock. What type of God is this? Until you start digging, understand that actually the blood of Jesus is on every single page. It's not trying to find a tease out some moralistic story. He's actually saying, I'm not after your son, I'm after your joy. I'm fighting for your joy, Abram. I'm not letting you settle. So the story gets to the climax. You can read it at home. He puts his son on the altar. He ties his boy down. His boy says, Dad, where's the sacrifice? What's going on here? And Abraham's stumbling, I can imagine, with great pain in his heart, nervous, saying, the Lord will provide. Not trying to, doesn't want to meet his son's eyes. The Lord will provide. Trying to convince his heart, tears probably streaming down his face, trusting, trust, this is what God said. And as he gets the flint out and is about to put the knife in his own son's heart to, to sacrifice him, the voice of God booms out and says, stop, Abraham! Abraham stops quivering. Yes, Lord. He says, Abraham, because I can see that you have not spared your son, your only son from me, I have provided for you a ram in the thicket. Take your son off the altar, get that ram, and sacrifice that ram instead. Now, it's, a, it's an amazing thing because that's the first time that we see in the Scriptures the, the doctrine of something called substitution, where one man gets set free by the sacrifice of another. You see, in this story, we see one man set free by one lamb. The story continues. If you keep reading the Bible, there's a narrative in the book of Exodus. The Israelite nation gets led into Egypt. They're there for captivity 400 years under the might and power of a different empire, not Rome, but Egypt, crushing them, crushing their spirits and whipping their bare backs. And they're crying out, how long, O Lord? Until God sent a deliverer named Moses. And Moses came, and through the power of God, we see the plagues, 10 plagues that, that started to show them the supremacy and might of God against the gods of Egypt, the lower G, the lowercase G of gods of Egypt, crushing them, showing them one by one that I am the God of all gods. And as the people watched this in fear and excitement and wonder, trying to work out what is the end of the story, not only is God supreme in their story, we come to a moment where Moses says, actually, God's sufficient. He's going to set you free. So they say, how's this going to happen? He says, well, tonight, guys, the angel of the Lord is going to pass over every single home here in Egypt, ours and the Egyptians. And as he passes over every home, he's going to lay to waste and kill every firstborn son in every home. And the Israelites start to get horror because they're like, we've seen the mighty hand of God. We've seen the plagues of the river turning to blood. We've seen the, the, the day turn to night. We've seen the frogs. We've seen the plagues. We know his power. Please, not, not our kids as well. Moses says, don't worry. God's given us a plan for us to be spared. All we need to do is kill a lamb 
a pure spotless lamb, kill it and take the blood and put it on the door frame of our home. If we do that, the angel of the Lord will pass over us. I can imagine if I'm a parent and I know this is the, probably the fate, potential fate of my kids, I'm saying, Moses, what else did the Lord say? Give us the full conversation. That sounds simplistic. Surely there's a prayer we must pray, some liturgical response. We'll do it. Do we have to march, march around our home a few times? Do we have to, what do we have to do? Do we have to, do we, what, please, surely that blood thing is too simplistic. Moses was like, that's all I got, guys. He says, I've been, I'm asking God, but he's just, it seems like he's blue ticking me. Not, not getting back. Not getting back to me. He just said the blood. That's all he said. Put the blood there. That's enough. So they go, oh, Moses, if you're wrong on this. And, and I can imagine that night in the homes of the Israelites. They're holding their kids. And they, as the night goes cold and quiet, quiet over the valley of all the homes, they hold their kids. And, come here, come here. No, no time for playing. Come, come, kids. And they hold their kids tight. And they, they hold them there. And they're weeping and saying, please, God, please, God, may the blood be enough. Please, God, may Moses have got this right. Please, God, please, God, not my kids, not my kids. And as the angel of the Lord comes over the valley, goes over Egyptian homes, that does not have the blood of their, their doors, they start to hear screams. Ah! Ah! As home after home after home of Egyptian families have their firstborn children slaughtered. Firstborn sons slaughtered, slaughtered, slaughtered. No blood on their homes. And I can imagine as those screams get louder and louder up the valley, the Israelites in Goshen are holding the kids going, please, Lord, no. Please, Lord, no. Please, Lord, no. And the angel of the Lord comes, hovers over their home. And they see the, sees the blood on the doorframe. And the angel of the Lord passes over, leaves their homes alone. It's the first time that we see in Genesis 22, one lamb for one man. We see a new theology called propitiation where the wrath of God is turned aside by the blood. The angel gets to pass over just because of the blood. And here we see not just one man for one lamb. We see one lamb for one family. Saves the family. You keep reading. The book of Leviticus says the nation gets set free and they go on this journey to the rewards of the promised land and they're in the wilderness. And we're given a way for them to relate to God and to find uh, holiness and, and find freedom and relationship with God. And the way they do that is once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the people are to bring two lambs, two, two, two lambs to the high priest. And the high priest will do two things. The first one, he'll lay his hands on and pray a prayer over the first lamb. And he'll impute the sins of the nations from their past year onto that lamb. Then he'll slaughter it and take that blood and bring it to the Holy of Holies. And the sacrifice will be received for the past sins of the people. Then on the, the other lamb will come along. And they'll, he'll come with this lamb. And he'll take his hands. He'll lay it on. And he'll impute and he'll pray the sins of the people for the future year. The next year to come onto this lamb. So that their past sins and their future sins, we thank God, we bring them. We're confessing them to you. Please will you forgive us. And that lamb will become, and they'll take that lamb, and they'll take it out the back, and they'll drive it into the wilderness. Something that we call, that's where we get the word scapegoat. Where that goat would take the sins of the people with him into the wilderness. And it's a profound thing where you go, what's going on with all these statements in the Bible? What type of moral are we supposed to read out? Well, there's no huge moral that we're supposed to learn except actually that the blood is bleeding on every page. Because actually the amazing things we see at the beginning, Genesis 22, one lamb for one man. Exodus 12, one lamb for one family, one lamb for one nation every year. It's enough for God to forgive, for God to forgive. Then we stumble, you keep reading, you stumble upon John, chapter 1. A man named John the Baptist arrives on the scene. And he sees a man named Jesus coming out of the wilderness. And he sees Jesus, the first thing that John the Baptist says that's recorded in Scripture about Jesus. He says this statement, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
One lamb for one man. One lamb for one family. One lamb for one nation. One lamb for the world. I'm going to call the band up at this moment. And I say to you, sir, ma'am, the blood of Jesus is on every page of this Bible. Calling out, pleading with us to to allow it to set us free, to allow it to be enough for us. I want to ask you, though, if this blood is on every page of the Bible, is his blood on every page of your life? Is his blood on every page of your life? You see, here's the great news as I keep reading the Scriptures. Is the, or the gospel writer, one of the, 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 the writers of the epistles, uh, Peter, a disciple who followed Jesus, he wrote this epistle in the book of 1 Peter. He said that Christ was crucified before the creation of the world. He was the Lamb of God slain before the creation of the world. This is mind-blowing because, yes, Jesus died. I want to tell you, Jesus died physically, not metaphorically. He died a death. God died in our place at a place called Calvary 2,000 or so years ago. He died. But Peter says, I'll go one better. I want to tell you, Jesus didn't die at the hands of man. He actually died at the hands of his Father before creation. Jesus was always the plan for God. He didn't stumble into it. He didn't say, oh, what do I do with this sin? No, no, he was always the plan. His, Jesus' blood was paid before millennia, millennia, millennia passed. Before you and I were born, before we were thought of, before we were addicted, before we were abused, before we were angry, Jesus' blood was shed. That, what that says to me is the horrors of your past, the days you wish you could go relive, the days you wish you could erase and never look back at, those days, those pages have been covered by the blood of Jesus. The great news as well is the Bible ends in the book of Revelation tells us this is how we overcome. You want to know how we win at the end of the day? By the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. The great news for me there is that actually before we were born, before eternity began, His blood was lifted up as supreme and sufficient. At the very end, when all other nations have bowed their knees and kings and queens who have raged in vain, surrender and lie and throw their crowns down and say, it's you, His blood will be supreme and sufficient. I want to tell you that means your future fears, your anxieties. What do I do about my kids? How am I going to overcome this addiction? What am I going to do about finances? What does my future look like? What about the nation? Where are we going? All of that is covered by the blood of Jesus. Here's the great news this morning for all of us. His blood is enough for our past. It's enough for our future. It's enough for our right now. You're faced with a Goliath, a situation, a prison that seems large, that seems constricting, that seems suffocating. I know there are people in this room who have lost family members in the last couple of weeks. There's people in this room whose spouses are wanting to leave them. I know there's people in this room whose kids are angry and running away and doing stupid things. I know there's people in this room who are battling raging addictions that they're suppressing and hiding and hiding. I know that these are stories. This is not ethereal out there. This is real. I want to tell you, Jesus Christ walks into every single page of our lives right now, every prison of our lives right now, and says, I am supreme, and I'm sufficient. Will you trust me? Will you trust me? That sounds so simple, Gabe. What else is there? The blood of Jesus is enough. The blood of Jesus will sustain. The blood of Jesus will make a way. The blood of Jesus will hold you. This is the message of Colossians. This is the message of Jesus. And this is the word of God to you right now, sir, man. You came here today saying, I need a word. I need a word. I give you not a word. I give you the word. His name is Jesus. The final authority on every single situation. I'm going to ask us in this moment, why don't we close our eyes, please?
I want to make an invitation this morning for, for us to bow our knee to him, to get out of the center and allow him to take the center, central place in our lives, the supremacy in our lives. Because you see, in those days, what ired up Nero was the fact that there's a phrase they said, whenever they came into town, they would declare, Caesar is Lord. The propaganda of the day. Caesar is Lord. He is the one who provides. He is the one who makes a way. He's the one who sustains our existence. But a group of subversive Christians started to say something different. They, they stole that phrase. They corrupted it. And they said, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. That phrase is not made up in a church building. That phrase is not made by a committee. That phrase was made up in resistance to the enemy power. I want to tell you, sir, ma'am, your freedom, your joy today is to say, my finances aren't Lord. Jesus is Lord. Subversive, subversively. My relationships isn't Lord. Jesus is Lord. My emotions aren't Lord. Jesus is Lord. My situation isn't Lord. Jesus is Lord. And that is, sir, ma'am, is how we have joy in a prison. If you're here today and you're saying, I need to step off the throne and allow Jesus to be central, I'm going to ask you, whether it's the first time or the hundredth time, I'm going to ask you in this moment to lift your hands as high as you can. Unashamed, lift it up, please. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Father, I thank you, Jesus. Some of these people, first time, God, you are flooding their hearts with grace. Maybe for the hundredth time, you're reminding people, I am your provider. I am your source. I am your supreme being. I am your God. I shall have no other. Thank you, Jesus. Today is a line in the sand day where we say, actually, this is who I am called to be, a person who lives under the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus. I thank you right now, joy is flooding hearts. Joy is flooding hearts as we repent, God, of lesser gods. We repent of lesser pleasures and lesser pursuits and say, you are the treasure. You are the, you're the pearl of great price. You are the, you're the one that we love, Jesus. You're the beginning and the end. You're the one that we'll sell everything for. You're the one that we'll give everything away for, God. I thank you, Jesus. Stir our affections for your son. And as you do that, Father God, will our hearts bow and receive the joy of our salvation the joy of our salvation. For the joy set before him, he died and endured the cross so that we would be able to be sustained and provided for and set free by the blood of Jesus. I'm gonna ask us to land. Can we stand to our feet? And if you, like me, are needing to respond to the word of God this morning, can you lift your hands? Father, I thank you for us as a people, your sons and daughters, whom you are jealous for. Today, I thank you, Father God, that no matter what prison we may be facing right now, no matter what situation at work, no matter what anxiety of our hearts, no matter what temptation that is drawing our eyes astray, I pray, Father, that the blood of Jesus covers every single heart, every single page, every brokenness, Every sin, every abuse, every anger, every addiction, God, your blood is sufficient. So Jesus, we as a people, come under your word, come under your authority and allow you to set us free. I thank you, Jesus, for what you're doing with us and the people.